0: Parsha Sveigash contains 106 verses and it's going to wrap up and resolve the saga that began two weeks ago in the Parsha, 22 years prior in the story. It began with the sale of Joseph and it's going to end in this week's Parsha with the Jewish people, the nascent Jewish people, the family of Israel descending down to Egypt. We left off last week with a cliffhanger when Joseph had planted evidence incriminating Benjamin of a horrific crime of stealing from the king, and he was going to be taken as a slave. And now the rest of the brothers, and especially Judah, who had promised to take responsibility for Benjamin, they're coming to plea their case before Joseph. And as we spoke about last week, Joseph wasn't just yanking their chain to frustrate them or to cause them pain. Rather, this is all calculated. This was all his plan of how he's going to, A, ascertain that they have repented from their ways, and B, he was going to facilitate their complete repentance. He takes Benjamin, his full brother, as a slave, and right away the brothers say, no, 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 don't take Benjamin, take all of us. Essentially, all the brothers that were part of the steam to enslave Joseph, they themselves are offering themselves as as slaves to ensure that Benjamin is unharmed. And this is all part of their repentance process. They mistreated Joseph, and now they're willing to accept upon themselves that same treatment that they give to Joseph in order to spare Benjamin, and that demonstrates that they have indeed repented from their earlier ways. And Joseph wanted them to wallow a little bit in, in what this means, Judah's going to launch into a 16 verse tirade to Joseph and a plea begging him to spare Benjamin, and he's going to invoke the pain of Jacob, of his father. And this is all going to be atoning for their total disregard to the pain that caused Jacob, their father, in the sale of Joseph. So Judah begins his plea by approaching Joseph, and he tells him, If you please, my Lord, may your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Don't be angry at me, for you are like Pharaoh. This end of this first verse, in verse 18, uh, that you are like Pharaoh, Rashi explains in four different ways. Number one, you're like Pharaoh. I honor both of you. You are as respected in my eyes as a king, like Pharaoh. Number two, Pharaoh when he kidnapped Sarah many Parshas ago, he was stricken by God. If you attack Benjamin, you too will be stricken by God. Number three, just as Pharaoh doesn't keep his promises, so to you don't keep your promises because you promised to look at Benjamin and now you're enslaving him. And number four, you're exactly like Pharaoh because if you get me angry and if you don't a seed to my demands, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your king, Pharaoh. I think this is kind of interesting, these four explanations in Rashi. Uh, these are all, I think, part of a message that Judah is trying to convey. Number one, he begins with honor, you're like a king. Number two, he invokes historical precedent. You should be very wary about what you're about to do in enslaving Benjamin. It could really not end up so well for you, as it didn't for Pharaoh the antecedent of the Turan king when he kidnapped Sarah. Number three, he's highlighting the flaw in his behavior. Joseph tells Judah, of course, he doesn't know this Joseph yet. You asked to see him, and now you're kidnapping him. You. There's something wrong with with what you're doing. And finally, he gives him a threat. He tells him, if you go ahead with this, I have no other choice but to fight, and I'll probably kill you and pharaoh and this is a a classic carrot and stick argument that judah begins to convey to joseph and then he begins to recount the whole episode my lord has asked his servant saying have you a father or a brother you began this whole dialogue we came for food and you started asking about family and rashi explains that this was improper people come to ask for food You don't start investigating the whole family. What, do you want to marry into them? Do you want to marry your daughter to them? Or do you want to marry their sister? It's it's a very odd question. That line of questioning is improper. You begin with this improper dialogue by investigating into our family. And we responded, despite the fact that you asked an improper question, we answered your question. And we responded that we have an old father and a young child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he is alone, left from his mother, and his father loves him. So we answered, yes, we have a father, and Benjamin is with his father, but Benjamin's brother died, and his father, Jacob, is unwilling to part from Benjamin. And then you asked, continues Judah, to see him. And we said, well, you can't really see him, because if you see him, if he leaves his father, it's quite likely that he will die. Why will Benjamin die if he leaves his father, Jacob? So Rashi explains that Benjamin's mother, Rachel, she died amidst childbirth, but amidst a journey. They were traveling from Laban's house back to Canaan, and along the way, she died. And therefore, this family, Benjamin and his mother, they have a genetic weakness for travel. His mother died while they traveled, it's quite likely that when he travels, he will die as well. It's interesting that in last week's parasha and a little bit later on in this week's parasha, Jacob gives a very different reason why Benjamin may suffer along the journey. And that is because the Satan causes danger when someone is traveling. When someone's home, well, then they're secure. When they're traveling, well, then things are up in the air and there's room for the Satan to cause Danger. It's been suggested that Jacob knew prophetically that Rachel died not because of the labor of the journey, but rather because her death and her gravesite will play a very important role in the future of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people are leaving, are leaving Israel and descending in chains to Babylon, they're going to stop along the way by Rachel's tomb. And they're going to pray there and Rachel's soul in heaven is going to plea with God successfully to protect the Jewish people. And therefore, when Jacob talks about Benjamin dying, it's for a totally different reason because he knows it wasn't because of the labor of the journey, rather as because of some future role that she's going to play. That her gravesite is going to play in the future of the Jewish people, and therefore he offers an alternative reason why Benjamin may be endangered, and that's because the Satan causes trouble in times of danger. Continues Judah. Even though we told you that Benjamin cannot leave his father, you insisted, and you told us that unless you bring Benjamin, you won't be able to get an audience with Joseph again. We went back to our father, and our father eventually said, "Go get some more food." and We said, well, we can't go back to Egypt. We can't meet the king, the viceroy of Egypt, unless we have Benjamin with us. And finally, Jacob relented, and he sent Benjamin with us. But now what happens? You want to imprison Benjamin. And we're going to go back to our father, and their souls, the soul of Benjamin and the soul of our father Jacob, they're bound up together. And if he finds out that the youth is missing, he will die. And you're going to cause that our father will descend in sorrow into the grave. Instead, I have a different proposal, continues Judah. I took responsibility for this child. Take me as a servant instead. I am more talented, more gifted in every which way. And let Benjamin ascend back to his family, I will replace him. How can I go up to my father if the youth is not with us? I don't want to see what's going to be if I go to my father, Jacob, without Benjamin. Chapter 45 begins after Judah concludes his impassioned speech. Joseph couldn't restrain himself, and he announced to everyone that was present in the room, everyone leave here, therefore no one will remain in the room when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. After Joseph heard the tremendous dedication that Judah had to the well-being of Benjamin, he was ready to reveal himself. He was comforted in the fact that his brothers are not the same people that sold him. They're willing to put their own lives on the line for the well-being of Benjamin. Now it's time for him to remove his mask. But if he does that, his brothers are going to be embarrassed. And therefore, he he announced that everyone in the room, all the other Egyptians that were in the throne room, they should all leave so no one should remain with him when he reveals himself to his brothers. The Midrash points out that he actually made a mistake. You know, these brothers, very strong, very muscular, now that Joseph was alone and vulnerable, it's quite possible they could have attacked him, could have killed him. Nonetheless, Joseph was unwilling to reveal his identity before the room was empty and he even placed his life in danger to prevent his brothers from being shamed and he cries out and he announces to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still alive but his brothers could not answer him because they were totally bamboozled they were totally, totally they were totally shocked by his revelation. Joseph says very simple things. I'm Joseph. That same Joseph that you sold, I'm Joseph. And all I want to know is Jacob still alive. And there's a very famous midrash here that says that this revelation, these simple words, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? That is a template for the rebuke and criticism that we are all going to be subject to. Sometime in the future, in the day of judgment, in a day of reckoning. Just as Joseph just revealed reality to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive, so to the Almighty will reveal reality and will be able to critique and rebuke each and every one of us. And just like the brothers are left spellbound, they cannot say anything, so too we will have nothing to respond to the Almighty. Joseph tells his brother, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? You're begging me for mercy because of all the pain that Jacob is going to suffer if Benjamin does not return. Well, I am Joseph. You sold me as a slave and you were not concerned about how Jacob would take it. And that criticism was so biting, was so penetrating, was so true that all the other excuses And all the other justifications in the world, they evaporated. If you were to ask the brothers earlier, why did you sell Joseph? And they could have maybe given him some rationale, some justification. We've talked about it in the past. They had reasons why they did it, and they would have defended it. But once Joseph just reveals this one bit of information, the whole story becomes clear, and everything collapses like a house of cards, and they have nothing to say. In the future, the Almighty will do the same thing. The Almighty may ask us, Hey, why didn't you study Torah properly? I gave you a divine Torah. Why did you waste your time with all the other stuff in the world? And maybe we'll tell the Almighty, Well, I didn't have enough intellect. I I was mentally disadvantaged. I couldn't study the very cognitively demanding Torah. And the Almighty may show us in response that, Well, for your business or for all kinds of games, You had plenty of intellect. It wasn't that you didn't have intellect. It's just that you chose to direct it towards other pursuits. Someone may say, hey, I didn't give charity because I didn't have any money. And they might say, well, you spent money on this and you spent money on that. And you obviously had money, you just didn't have money for this cause. And in the face of such rebuke and such criticism, there will be nothing left to say. Joseph continues. He tells his brothers, come close to me, if you please. They came close. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother. It is me whom you have sold into Egypt. Joseph addresses the elephant in the room. The brothers are sitting before a king who now reveals to them that he indeed is their long lost brothers that they sold. that They totally disregarded when he had these crazy dreams. He's going to be a king. They laughed him off. They sold him as a slave. And now he's in the place of power and they're on their knees quaking in their boots. What does Joseph do? He doesn't let that linger. He addresses it right away. You sold me to the land of Egypt? And he gets it out there, and hopefully it will lead to them being comforted and not have that stay between them forever. And he continues, don't be distressed, don't reproach yourself, You sold me, yes, but really the reason why I was sold is because the Almighty sent me ahead of you to be a provider. You think that you did something wrong, but really it was the Almighty manipulating everything. And Joseph is forgiving them for what they did to him, but he's also trying to comfort them and assuage their feelings to try to cleanse the atmosphere from any enmity that maybe could have existed between the two. Continues Joseph, this is two years of hunger while we have four, while we have five years to go. Thus God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival in the land and to sustain you for a momentous deliverance. And now it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, a master over his entire household and a ruler throughout Egypt. You think that you sent me? No. It's quite clear. Once you piece together everything that happened, you look at the big picture, all these actions had to happen. They were orchestrated by God, and therefore they were not subject to your free will. The Almighty compelled you to sell me. It wasn't you who sold me. It was God who sold me. And therefore, I am not upset at you. Joseph is telling them that it ended up well. I became king. Don't worry about it. But he says to them more. It's possible that they made a mistake. They did something egregious. They sold their brother as a slave. The fact that it ended up well for him, thats that, that has nothing to do with it. They still did something terrible. Joseph says, no, that's not what happened. You did not sell me. Even the action wasn't bad. That was the action of God. It wasn't your free will that did that. And therefore, I have zero animus towards you. And Joseph continues his speech of comfort and reconciliation to his brothers. And he tells them, go get Jacob, bring Jacob here, tell him that I'm the king of Egypt. I'm going to apportion an amazing piece of land for you that'll be for you, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your flock, for your cattle. We still have five more years of famine. Come here, I will take care of you. Continues, Joseph, Behold, your eyes see, as do the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. Therefore, tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you saw, but you must hurry and bring your father down here. Rashi explains that this is a multi-layered message that he's sending here. He says to them, Your eyes have seen my honor, and in addition, you have seen that I'm your brother. Rashi tells us that he showed his brothers the fact that he too was circumcised. And that is my mouth that's speaking to you. He spoke to them in Hebrew and he compares them to his brother Benjamin. And he tells them, that, just as I have no hatred to my brother Benjamin, who wasn't there when I was sold, so too in my heart, there is no hatred to any one of you. And Joseph finishes his speech and It works. The brothers open up, and they're willing to engage with Joseph. Joseph falls on his brother Benjamin's neck and cries. Benjamin cries on his neck. He kisses all his brothers, and he wept upon them. And afterwards, his brothers conversed with him. Initially, they were so shocked they couldn't talk, and now they have opened up, and they're willing to talk to him. He comforted them. They're not scared of him, and peace and brotherhood reigned. It's interesting that the Torah describes the exact nature of this emotional reunion. Joseph falls upon his brother Benjamin's neck and weeps, and Benjamin weeps upon his neck. It's a very strange way of describing this emotional reunion. But if we just read the verse, I think it would be self-explanatory. They were hugging, they were crying, they were weeping, they were... Excited, relieved, very emotional in this reunion. But Rashi, who purports to explain the verse in the simplest way, offers a whole explanation of what's actually going on. Joseph falls on his brother Benjamin's neck and cries. Why is he crying, says Rashi? He's crying because in Benjamin's portion of land, in the land of Israel, there's going to be the city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, there's going to be the two temples. And they're both going to be destroyed. And therefore now, Joseph is crying on his brother's neck because of the destruction of the temples many hundreds of years in the future. And Benjamin returns the sentiment. And he cries on Joseph's neck. Well, that's because the tabernacle which is going to be in the city of Shiloh before the temple is actually built, that's going to be in Joseph's portion, and that too is going to be destroyed, and therefore he's crying about that. This is kind of odd. There's a reunion here between two brothers, haven't seen each other for a long time. They're happy, they're relieved, they're excited, they're emotional, and they're crying. Yet Rashi talks about some event that's in hundreds of years in the future, in their portions, there's going to be temples, there's going to be tabernacles, it's going to be destroyed. It's a very strange interpretation. And I think maybe the answer is, is that, you know, the Torah is codified for eternity. And if it was a simple, understandable emotion, given the circumstances, the Torah would not necessarily record it for posterity. And therefore, every time there's an emotion or an emotional expression of the Torah, Rashi will explain to you what the higher meaning behind it is because it's impossible to say the Torah is just recording emotions that are natural for the situation that people are in. And it's been pointed out that these two brothers are falling on each other's neck. The neck, that's the bridge between the brain, between the intellect, and the rest of the body. And the animalistic instinct, and the neck in Kabbalistic sources is always the bridge between the holy and the mundane. So, for example, we have the mitzvah of tefillin, which which we put a a knot on the top of the neck to kind of highlight and symbolize this connection that we're trying to foster between the spiritual and the intellectual and the mundane and the physical. Similarly according to Rashi, it makes a lot of sense. Joseph is crying on Benjamin's neck and Benjamin's crying on on Joseph's neck. Well, what's the temple? The temple is also kind of like a neck because it's the touch point where the spiritual and physical worlds touch. And therefore, it too is this bridge between the spiritual and the mundane. And therefore, it makes sense that they're crying on each other's neck means that they're crying over the destruction of the temple now why is this the apt time to cry over the temple so maybe an answer to that is is that now there's an outpouring of brotherly love as we know the temple would go on to be destroyed because of senseless hatred from one Jew to another Jew now this brotherly love in the future The temples will be destroyed because of brotherly hatred. And Joseph and Benjamin are lamenting that these feelings that they're experiencing right now won't continue in perpetuity. The news spread throughout Egypt and the news was heard in Pharaoh's palace. Everyone found out that Joseph's brothers have come and it was very pleasing in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. Now that they found out that Joseph was part of this prestigious family. He was the scion of the family of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. They were happy, says the Ramban, because now their viceroy is not some random slave, but rather is someone that comes from a very prestigious and honorable background. The Sepharno has a different interpretation on why the Egyptians are happy that Joseph's brothers came, because they were a little worried. They had given all the keys of the kingdom to Joseph, and he had tremendous latitude to make far-reaching decisions in what's going to happen in land of Egypt. And they were worried that his family, well, they're foreigners. They're not here. So he doesn't really have so much skin in the game for the well-being of the future of Egypt. And now, that they find out that his brother's here, his whole family's going to come join, he's going to be much more invested into the well-being of of the country, and therefore his decisions are going to be well thought out and optimized for the long-term well-being of the country. I read an article recently that in Europe today, all the heads of state don't have children. In fact, in Judaism, one of the requirements to be a great leader is to have children, to be invested in the future, whereas sadly in Europe today, the heads of pretty much every single country in Europe is childless, and they're really not invested, at least in a familial way, in the well-being of the countries that they are running, and that could be very dangerous. So Pharaoh is very excited He tells Joseph, tell your brothers to go load up your animals, bring your family, bring your homes. I'm going to give you the best part of the land of Egypt. Take wagons for your children, for your wives. Let's bring everyone here. Joseph gives gifts to his brothers and sends messages to his father and sends 10 donkeys laden with the best of Egypt and all kinds of grain and bread and food for the journey And he sends them up to the land of Canaan. They arrive to Jacob and they tell him the great news. Joseph is still alive. Moreover, he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob has a hard time believing it. He rejects it. And he can't imagine that this is really true. And they continue and they tell him, all the words that Joseph had spoken to them, he sees the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport them, and the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. He was enlivened, and he announced, How great is it? My son Joseph is still alive. I shall go and see him before I die. Initially, Jacob had a hard time believing him. And eventually, after he saw the wagons, and he heard the story a few more times... He believed them. The Ramban says something interesting. The Ramban says that Jacob had a heart attack from joy. He was so shocked by this this news. It wasn't broken to him slowly, and he had to be resuscitated. And that's what it means, that Jacob, his heart rejected it. That means that he wasn't able to absorb such good news, and eventually they had to kind of resuscitate and bring him back too, and then he was revived. And Rashi says something very interesting. It says that the spirit of the father Jacob was revived. He was enlivened. What does that mean? It means that his prophecy was restored. The spirit of Jacob was given life. What does that mean? It means that he had his prophecy restored. When Joseph was taken away from him 22 years prior, he was so sad and so depressed He lost his prophecy. And now, 22 years later, his prophecy has been restored. And how does the Torah describe that? He was given life. And what's implied by this is that life, by Jacob's standards, equals prophecy. In the final verse of chapter 45, Jacob announces how great it is. My son Joseph is still alive. I'm going to go down to see him before I die. It's interesting that the verse does not say, and Jacob said, it says, and Israel said. So one of the commentators here tells us that why is Jacob suddenly being called Israel? As we know, we saw a few weeks ago, Jacob and Israel are often interchangeable. Even though Jacob had his name changed to Israel, the the first name of Jacob wasn't removed. There was just an additional name of Israel. It's a great mystery as to why the Torah sometimes calls Jacob, Jacob, and sometimes Israel. But here we have a clue. The commentator tells us that when Jacob had his prophecy restored, then he was called Israel. Whereas when he was bereft of prophecy, he was called Jacob. Chapter 46 begins with Jacob assembling his whole family and descending to Egypt. But he begins by slaughtering sacrifices and offering prayers to the Almighty. The Jewish people are slated to be in Egypt for a long time, and Jacob begins this journey with prayer and with sacrifices so that everything should work out fine. And God spoke to Israel in night visions and said to him, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am, he, Naini. And the Almighty reassures him, I am the God, God of your father. Have no fear in descending to Egypt, for I shall establish you as a great nation there. I will descend with you to Egypt, and I shall also surely bring you up. And Joseph shall place his hand on your eyes. One of the commentators points out that in verse 2 here we read that God spoke to Israel in a night vision. Unlike the other two forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob is the only one that were told specifically that his prophecy came at night. In the very famous prophecy that he had with the dream of the ladders, with ascending and descending angels, that too was a nighttime prophecy. And here too... Jacob has a nighttime prophecy. And the reason for that is, is that when Jacob was heading to Laban, he was about to experience some very difficult years. And those years are compared to nighttime. Similarly, here, Jacob is about to lead his family down to Egypt where they're going to be in exile, essentially, for hundreds of years. And it's nighttime. And yet the Almighty tells him amidst the darkness amidst the sadness and the despondency don't worry i'm going to be with you i will establish you as a great nation i shall descend with you to egypt and i shall also surely bring you up rashi tells us that this is a promise that jacob will be buried in israel even though he's going to pass away in egypt his body is going to be brought back to Israel and buried in Israel in the cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron. It is interesting that in next week's Parsha, we're going to read how Jacob is going to expend great efforts to ensure that he will be buried in Israel. He's going to bring in Joseph and make him swear. Despite the fact that Jacob here receives a divine promise that he's going to be buried in Israel, he still invests his own efforts to make sure that it's going to happen. He doesn't sit back and do nothing despite the divine promise. So Jacob arose from 'er Beersheba. The sons of Israel transported Jacob, their father, as well as the young children and wives, the whole family. They're all descending in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to transport them. They took their livestock and their wealth which they had amassed in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt. Why does it say the wealth that they had amassed in the land of Canaan? So Rashi tells us that the wealth that he had acquired in the house of Laban, he forfeited that. And he gave all that to Esau in exchange for Esau's slot in the cave of the patriarchs. And Jacob said, the possessions that I received from outside the land of Israel, I am not desirous of them. And therefore, he made a huge pile of gold and silver and told Esau, take it in exchange for your slot in the burial place of our forefathers. And this seems to kind of contradict the sentiment we saw that Jacob exhibited a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, Jacob endangered himself to retrieve the, a few flasks that he had left on the other side of the river, even though those were his possessions that he had earned outside of the land of Israel. And here, Rashi tells us that only the wealth that he acquired in the land of Israel, only that was worthwhile to him, he had disowned the wealth of outside the land of Israel and gave it all to Esau in exchange for a burial portion. And maybe the answer is, That, of course, Jacob cared about it, but not in comparison to the burial portion. To be buried alongside Abraham and Isaac, that was worth more than all of the possessions that he had amassed outside of the land of Israel. Incidentally, I am contractually bound to mention that Torch, my organization, does not hold the same standard. We accept donations even from monies earned outside of Israel. So Jacob with his whole family, sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters, they are all descending with him to Egypt. And it lists the names of Jacob's 12 sons and his daughter and all of their children. And it concludes the tally by telling us that there's 70 people who are part of Jacob's entourage as they headed to Egypt. Rashi points out, That if you actually count the names one by one, you end up with 69 people, not 70 people. So who is this missing person? So Rashi explains that the missing person is the daughter of Levi. Her name is Yocheved. And she was born right when they entered and they passed through the gates of the city in Egypt. So while the Torah only counts 69, Yocheved, that's the missing child, she was born right when they entered Egypt. Why did Yocheved have to be born right before they entered the land of Egypt? So perhaps an answer to that question is that we know Yocheved, she is going to be the mother of Moses. And there is a principle That whenever the Almighty smites someone, whenever the Almighty strikes someone, the remedy will always precede the illness. And therefore, the Almighty is about to send the Jewish people into a very long, protracted exile in Egypt. But before that even begins, right when they're about to enter, Yochavah is born. She is going to be the mother of the remedy. She's going to be the mother of Moses. And therefore, you cannot enter Egypt before the roots of the redemption are in place. And therefore, before they entered between the walls, the mother of the Savior of Israel was born. The Ibn Ezra here does a little bit of a calculation. We know the Jewish people spent 210 years in Egypt. And when they left, Moses was 80 years old. Well, if Yocheved was born right when they entered, and she's the mother of Moses, who was 80 years old when they left, well, then how old was Yocheved when Moses was born? And of course, we do the math. 210 minus 80 is 130. So this is kind of shocking. The Torah makes a huge big deal about the fact that Sarah has a child at the age of 90. That's a huge miracle. But here Yocheved has a child at the age of 130, and unless you read between the lines, you won't even pick up on it. That's an interesting question that the Ibn Ezra asked. Why does the Torah not make a big deal about the fact that Yohaven had a child at the old age of 130? The Ramban gives a very interesting answer. He says that unless a miracle was foretold by a prophet, the Torah will not mention it. There's miracles happening all day and all night. But the bar that a miracle has to reach before it's mentioned by the Torah is that it has to be announced beforehand by a prophet or else it's not significant enough to be included in the Torah. So after listing all the people that are going down to Egypt, the Torah tells us that Jacob sent Judah ahead of the contingency, either to go prepare the residence for them in Goshen Alternatively, Rashi says, to go establish a academy of learning, an academy of Torah before they got there. And the idea is that Jacob was concerned, you know, they, when they were in the land of Canaan, they had their bearings with them. You know, they had Jacob, and this is the place where they've lived for several generations. Now they're about to head into Egypt. What's going to ensure that their spiritual purity won't be compromised? And therefore, he sent Judah ahead of everyone else to go build a yeshiva, to go build religious Jewish infrastructure to make sure that they have continuity. They don't have any time where there isn't some sort of bastion of spiritual vitality for them in the land of Egypt. It's been pointed out that when the Jewish people came to America in the 1880s or so, with the first mass migration of European Jews to America, there really wasn't a very strong Jewish infrastructure. There weren't any yeshivos. There wasn't in industrialized kosher food. And as a result, the Jewish identity and the Jewish observance suffered tremendously because there wasn't the kind of infrastructure needed to maintain Jewish life. In Egypt, Jacob sent Judah ahead of everyone else to set things up before they got there. In verse 29, we read about the reunion of Joseph with his father after 22 years of separation. Joseph harnessed his chariot, he did it himself, and went up to meet Israel's father in Goshen. He appeared before him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck excessively. Again, we see a emotional reunion, and Rashi points out something interesting. It says that he appeared before him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck excessively. If you read the verse quite critically, it's clear that this was a unilateral emotional display. Joseph is crying on his father's neck, but Jacob is not returning the sentiment. Rashi tells us a very famous idea that Jacob did not fall on Joseph's neck, And did not cry. And our sages taught us that he was reciting the Shema. So at this momentous emotional reunion, Joseph was alone in hugging and kissing his father because his father was busy reciting the Shema. And one of the famous questions is that, why is there a disparity? If it's the appropriate time to recite the Shema, well, then both of them should be reciting the Shema. If it's not the time to recite the Shema, well, then neither of them should be reciting the Shema. Why is Jacob reciting the Shema and Joseph not reciting the Shema? So there are many answers given to this question. Some suggest that well, Joseph already said it earlier, Jacob was traveling and therefore he wasn't able to say it until later. Alternatively, it was the right time to say it, but Joseph wanted to greet his father and therefore he postponed it to later. I think another very useful idea here is, is that Jacob, he knew he was going to have a momentous, joyful, loving, emotional reunion with his son. And as a righteous person, he wanted to utilize that for something spiritual. He wanted to take that and dedicate it to God. He wanted to channel the joy that he had with his Reunion with his son that he thought was dead for 22 years, he wanted to find a way to direct that to his relationship with God. And this is maybe a broader idea that whatever we have in life, maybe we should try to use it, try to channel it towards advancing our spiritual agenda. My grandfather offered a fantastic explanation to this disparity. He quoted the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the chariot of God. Meaning that just like a king has a chariot that's always ready at a moment's notice to take the king wherever he wants to go, so too Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are always primed and ready for prophecy. Whereas all the other prophets need to spiritually tidy up themselves to prepare for prophecy, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are always ready for prophecy. They don't need to be prepared. Jacob was worried. He's about to encounter his son Joseph, and he knows that this gush of emotion could potentially harm his spiritual readiness for prophecy. His love and concern and joy in seeing his son Joseph may for a second cloud his spiritual readiness for prophecy and he is going to be booted off the chariot because he is going to have a lapse in readiness for prophecy. And therefore, he did not want to lose that, so he preempted the danger by resayin Hashemah by accepting upon himself the yoke of heaven and ensuring that he has no lapses from a total preparation and readiness for prophecy. Jacob is so delighted in seeing Joseph. He announces, Now I can die after having seen your face because you are still alive. Rashi tells us he had thought that he was going to die twice. He was going to die once in the physical world and once in the spiritual world because he had lost his prophecy when Joseph was missing. Therefore, he... His death would be two-tiered. There was going to be a physical death. And now that he lost his prophecy, he's going to have to suffer spiritual death too. Now that he sees that Joseph is still alive and his prophecy has been restored, he's only going to die once. And therefore he says, now I can die because then I'm all going to die once. Joseph is now concerned that Pharaoh is going to enlist all his brothers to ministerial positions, and therefore he warns his brothers before they meet Pharaoh that when Pharaoh asks you for your occupation, make it very clear that you're nothing but shepherds and herdsmen and cattlemen for generations. Therefore, he'll settle you in the region of Goshen, and he's not going to hire you to be part of his government. The only way to ensure that the Jewish people are able to settle properly in the land of Israel is if they have their leaders, the sons of Jacob on site to build the flourishing community. If they're going to be working for Pharaoh, it's not going to be good for their future in Egypt. So Joseph introduces his brothers to Pharaoh and he doesn't take them all. He takes only the ones that are more weak. And Pharaoh, indeed, predictably asks his brothers, what is your occupation? And they respond, your servants are shepherd. we as well as our forefathers, and they continue, we have come to sojourn in the land, there is no grazing for your servants' flock in the land of Canaan, because there's a terrible famine. Now, if you please allow your servants to dwell in the region of Goshen. So they tell him, listen, you know, we came from Canaan, it's so bad there, there's no Grass to graze, but here there is, and therefore let us settle in the land of Goshen so that we could have pasture for our flock. And the Ramban asks an interesting question. I don't understand. There was a famine everywhere. There's a famine in Egypt, and there's a famine as well in Canaan. So if there was no grass for pasture in Canaan, why would there be grass for pasture in the land of Goshen? And he answers that in the land of Canaan, the famine was so severe that the people were eating grass and there was no pasture left for the animals. But because in Egypt, Joseph had assiduously prepared ahead of time, there was food for the humans and there was some leftover pasture for the animals. Pharaoh agrees. He permits the brothers of Joseph to settle in the region of Goshen. And then Joseph brings his father Jacob and presents him to Pharaoh. And a very interesting exchange ensues. Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob responds with this very long and convoluted answer. The days of the years of my sojourns have been 130 years. Few and bad have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not reached the lifespans of my forefathers in the days of their sojourns. A very long and complicated answer to a simple question. Pharaoh asks, Jacob, how old are you? And he should have just said, I'm 130 years old. He gives this whole answer about the days of his sojourns and the days of his life, and it hasn't been as good as the life of my forefathers. What is going on over here? So my grandfather explained that there's two kinds of life. There's the days of the years of my sojourns, which is how long you are alive, how long are you breathing? And there's the days of your life, which is how long are you really living? How long are you really Alive, How long have you been spiritually vital? So Jacob answers in modesty by telling Pharaoh that the days of my sojourns are 130. But of those 130 years, few and bad have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not reached the lifespan of my forefathers in the days of their sojourns. What Jacob is telling us, there's an entirely new way to measure someone's life in this world. It's not how many years they've lived. It's of the years that they've lived, how many of those years have they actualized spiritually? And Jacob is saying about himself that of the years that he has lived, he has not actualized the same proportion as his forefathers have in the days of their sojourns, in the days that they have been alive. One of the commentaries says something a little bit scary. He says, if you count the words of this exchange, there's 33 words in the dialogue between Jacob and Pharaoh regarding how old Jacob is. Isaac, Jacob's father, lived to be 180. Jacob was also destined to live to 180, but as a result of this exchange, these 33 words between him and Pharaoh reduced 33 years from Jacob's life, and therefore Jacob only lived to 147. It seems like Jacob is being punished for the fact that he's complaining almost, that he's saying that few and bad have been the years, have been the days of the years of my life. He should have said, my years, my, my life was, has been incredible. If you're complaining about the years of your life, that may actually cause the Almighty to reduce the years of your life. Very steery indeed. And he lost one year for every word of that exchange. And the parsha ends with going back to Joseph's management of the famine and his continued diligence in working for Pharaoh. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them the land of Goshen in the region of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph sustained his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food according to their children. And what did Joseph do for the rest of the land during the time of famine? So he worked as a reliable steward of Pharaoh's property and wealth in his role as the viceroy of Egypt. And we're given a very long description here of everything that happened to show us, says the Ramban, the greatness of Joseph and the dedication and the reliance that he had in stockpiling all this tremendous wealth for Pharaoh and not using it to line his own pockets. All the people would come to Joseph for food, and Joseph would initially, he would sell it to them. And after their money was gone, he would sell to them in exchange for their livestock. After all their livestock was gone, Joseph acquired the actual land of Egypt for Pharaoh. But what he did was he didn't actually have the state acquire all the land. He let people work the land, but kept a certain fee, a certain cut, 20% of the produce went to the coffers of Pharaoh. Now, to ensure that the people don't feel ownership over the land that now belongs to Pharaoh, Joseph undertook a tremendous resettlement project where he moved people and entire cities out of the place where they have lived, out of the place where they feel comfortable, and moved them to different places and let them work the land elsewhere. As for the nation, verse 21 we read, he resettled it by cities from one end of Egypt's borders to the other, only the land of the priests he did not buy, since the priest had a stipend from Pharaoh, and they lived off the stipend the Pharaoh had given them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Rashi tells us something very interesting. Why did Joseph undertake this resettlement project? The real reason why was to shield his brothers from shame. The brothers, after all, they were immigrants. They were newcomers. And people would say, hey, you guys are in exile. You guys are expatriates. And therefore, to remove any stigma from his brothers, Joseph made everyone in the entire land, they're all in exile because they've all been booted from their homeland and resettled elsewhere. And it's interesting here, we're told that Pharaoh had granted a certain immunity to the clergyman. And we read at the end of the Parsha that Joseph made this immunity permanent. And this is tremendous foresight in the eyes of Joseph because he knew that the Jewish people would eventually be enslaved in the land of Egypt. And one of the ways that they will be saved is by the fact that the priestly class, the clergyman of the Jewish people, are not going to be treated the same way as everyone else. It's going to be instituted in the laws of Egypt and made permanent by Joseph that the clergymen are going to be immune from many of these rules and that will allow a remnant of the Jewish people to maintain their faith, the tribe of Levite. After Joseph instituted this 20% cut. The people said to him, you have saved our lives, you have given us life, may we, may we find favor in your eyes, my lord, and may, and we will be serfs to Pharaoh. It's interesting, if you compare this to what we saw earlier, that Jacob, he was given life when he had prophecy. And here we see that the Egyptians, all they considered to be alive is the fact that they had bread. Once they had bread, that's enough for them, whereas Jacob has a much higher standard of what is considered life. Prophecy for him is life. Everything else is not life. The Parsha ends. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is going to be the beginning of a very, very long and protracted stay in the land of Egypt. Next week, we will see and study the final portion of the book of Genesis, Parshas Vayechi.